So this evening, I like to finish uh, the retreat for my final talk. Tomorrow there'll be some speech, but it'll be different. Uh, for the final talk in the evening, I like to actually talk about the third jewel, the jewel of the sangha, the jewel of community, and what that might mean in our modern life and in a lay setting, in a secular setting, not in a monastic setting. But first, since uh, tomorrow, most of us are going to go back out into the world. I'd like to read you um, a small quotation about going out into the world. Because a beggar is fit to go on a mission when he or she has eight quality. What are the eight? Here, a beggar is one who listens, who gets others to listen, who learns, who remembers, who recognizes, who gets others to recognize, who is skilled in the consistent and the inconsistent, and who doesn't make trouble. So let's look at it, you know. And possibly this is something that we've done. Have we been, as we are here, hopefully we will bring those qualities to our daily life. One who listens. To me, this is really a practice. And that's why listening meditation is really a beginning, a tool, so that when we go into daily life, we work with sounds in a different way, and also we work with listening to others in a different way. And this is something that really can be a meditative practice. And I think it's important to see the practice is not just about sitting regularly on the cushion. But the practice is, in a way, cultivating the eightfold path. And so as part of that, you know, with this meditative listening, this stable listening, caring listening. And this is not something which just happens. I think it's very important to see all this quality is not magical. I come out of the retreat and I do meditative listening. But actually, it's something that one cultivates. And what is interesting, you can see we have our automatic mode of listening. Oh, yeah. And so in a way, we have to redirect, to have a different attitude how do I listen? What is listening about? And so in a way, it's kind of like back to sati as memory, reminding ourselves as we are listening to somebody, so, oh, let me try to listen and not get distracted. And that actually really requires concentration, focus, anchoring, and also openness. Someone who gets others to listen. And I think this is interesting, really. I mean, you could force others to listen. You're going to listen to me, you know, and you push them in a corner and you s they're stuck. That's not what the Buddha is talking about. How do we speak in such a way that somebody else is going to listen to us? So do we want to be heard no matter what I say and how I say it? Or do I wisely become aware of my effect, the effect of my word on others? How do I speak so that people can listen to me, can hear me? What kind of language do I use? What kind of attitude? This is something I learned, being a, a French person who then lived in Korea 
and then lived in England. And I realized you could not talk to people the way I would have talked in England or even in Korea. And once I had this experience, there was like a big problem in the community with the, the chimney, and suddenly there was water pouring down the chimney. And then I rush in the corridor, and the first person I meet, I say, come. And then I go back. And nothing happened. They did not follow me whatsoever. <laughs> and this was a nice person, a kind person, helpful person. So later I said, well, why did not you follow me? He said, well, you ordered me. I thought, okay, that's not the way to go. So then I learned to say, could you, could you possibly consider what about? <laughs> and it was a good exercise. It was a good exercise in awareness, in being careful. Then you have who learns. So in a way, the, the practitioner, of course, has learned something. But I think part of the training <coughs> is that we can learn from everything. As my master cousin used to say, everything can be a Dharma teaching. So is that, do we go out into the world, I know everything? Or do we go out into the world creatively engaging and learning? I think personally it's wonderful to learn something you did not know or to learn a better way to do things. Instead of being stuck, I know the best. I used to think I knew the best. My idea was a better idea. Until many, many years ago, we had to put beds in a room, many beds in a room, and I was convinced I had the best idea. But then I did not have the time to do it, so somebody else did it. And I thought, hey, let's look at it. I'm sure they, do not, they will not do it as well as I would have done it. <laughs> so I went into the room, and I was amazed. It was so much better than my idea. And then I realized, hey, other people have better ideas than me. So I think it's kind of opening, opening to others opening to learn from others, from situation. Who remembers? And this, of course, is if you want to continue to practice in daily life. Remembrance is so important. Remembering, I can be aware. Remembering, I can use loving kindness. Remembering, I can stop. Because we get so caught that we forget that this is beneficial, this is valuable. So remembering what is it that I value? What is it that helps me? Who recognizes? And recognizes and recognition is very much connected to the three characteristics. So we're kind of recognizing, oh yes, things are impermanent. Oh yes. Things are unreliable. When you get stuck, like we, once we were stuck in England, by 10 minutes, if, we had a, if the plane had left 10 minutes earlier, we would have got home. That was because of the volcano. I mean, can you imagine? Generally, you can worry about all kinds of things when you travel, but generally you don't have to worry about Icelandic volcano with unpronounceable names. You know? This is a one thing that everybody kind of, you know, in France now they have a film about the volcano, a comedy with the name of the volcano. You know, and the plane could not leave and then we have to find a way to, I mean, from England to get back to France. That was interesting. When there is a problem with a volcano in Iceland, we managed so to recognize unreliability, to recognize conditionality. Who gets other to recognize? And this is a tricky one. How do we get other to recognize? And that, I think, is in a way not forcing people to tell them, this is impermanent. 
<laughs> but how can we be an example of that? I think it's back to what Stephen was saying. Instead of forcing something or trying to convince somebody, in what way, and that I think is creativity, in what way could I help others to recognize impermanence, unreliability, that would not put them off? That, I think, is a challenge. They, and then we skilled in the consistent and the inconsistent. And this is very much about um, what is clear and what is not so clear. I think it's very interesting. The Buddha again and again was talking about, are you clear? Are you consistent? Or is it vague? Is it kind of not clear? And that's really in terms of talking about spirituality. It really challenges us. Does anything go because it's spirituality? Or do we have to be clear and consistent? I remember when I was in Korea, because it's Zen, I mean Zen, anything goes. So, you know, I was translating and I was working on a book with Stephen, who was a monk there also. And suddenly Stephen, coming from the Gelugpa tradition, said, this is not logical. And I said, come on, it's Zen, doesn't need to be logical. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 even Zen has its logic. So we kind of worked it out. But that to me was a revelation. Not to think, oh, it's spiritual, who cares? Doesn't matter. It's beyond concept. You can't say anything. <laughs> and then I was translating. And so first I was going to translate. It is like an eyeball falling on a hot stove. Even for Zen, this is a bit weird. <laughs> so this is more like, you know, a horror movie. <laughs> so then I thought, ah, noon. is a Korean word who can have two meanings. And actually, I translated, it is like a snowflake falling onto a hot stove. It disappeared immediately. So that saved the day. I was consistent and not inconsistent. And of course, it does not make trouble. And so the, the Buddha was so clear about that, that we are not out there to convince others, but that what is most important is that we are in life in a non-harming way. And that actually what is more important is how we behave and not what we say or criticize or whatever. And to me, this is interesting. How, and that's how can you have a discussion who does not become an argument but become a dialogue? In an argument, you grasp and identify with your idea. This is my idea. This is a good idea. If they refute my idea, they refute my identity. I, that's painful. And then you're just kind of fighting with each other. The one who has the better voice, better argument. But a dialogue is listening, realizing that person in front of me has his ears or her own creativity. And if I bring my own creativity to this dialogue, out of that, something else can come out. And that's where then you have this creative dialogue with the others. Then I wanted to, to read a little about what the Buddha uh, talked about the community, how to be in community. And so, of course, in those days, it was how to be in community, uh, the monks, the monks, the nuns, so here is a monk talking like the Buddha said, so how do you live in, you know, the, the monastic life in an harmonious way? And that's what the person said, the beggar said. Venerable sir, as to that, whichever of us 
returns first from the village with alms, prepares the seats, sets out the water for drinking and for washing, and puts the refuse bucket in its place. Whichever of us returns last eats any food left over if he wishes. Otherwise, she throws it away where there is no greenery or drops it into water where there is no life. She puts away the seed and the water for drinking and for washing. She puts away the refuse bucket after washing it. And he sweeps also out the refectory. Whoever notices that the pots of water for drinking, washing, or the latrines are low or empty, takes care of them. If they are too heavy for her, she calls someone else by a signal of the hand, and they move it by joining hands. But because of this, we do not break into speech. But every five days, we sit together all night discussing the Dhamma. This is how we abide, diligent, ardent, and resolute. What I like about this story is about generally when we are in community or if we are a family or if we are a couple or if we are a partnership or if we are a friend, with a friend. So if we are in relationship with people, I think often we have what I call this counting mechanism. Azidor, how many of these Azidor? Okay, if he does 10 of these, all right, I'll do five of that. Because, you know, 10 small ones, I'll do five big ones. Okay, if he does this, possibly I'll do that. But, I mean, if she doesn't do this, no way am I going to do that. <laughs> and here, the spirit is, do I need somebody to do something for me to do it? Not. The spirit was, in a way, in community, I would say, to, to develop community uh, feeling, one needs to trust in the other person. One needs to move from that counting, from that measuring, and just have that openness of, I trust they'll do whatever, and I'll do whatever. I don't have to be always on the lookout that they did that much of it. And then, if you do this, then actually the feeling is really special. This happened to me. When I was uh, in Korea as a nun many years ago, suddenly we were uh, five women in a small room and we could just kind of, all of us kind of fit. And I was by the door. This was winter, so there was a bit of draft. That was okay. So the five of us in this room, on the floor, sleeping on the floor, using the space as we could. And one day, in the middle of the three months retreat, I suddenly realized something is different. There was a really nice feeling. It really was wonderful feeling. Really light really spacious. And I thought, what's going on? Why is it different? Why is it that I feel something different? And then I looked and observed, and I realized that everybody else, for two weeks, did things because of the other. Because they knew the other would like it, or the other would prefer it. But everybody did it. And so there was this amazing friendly atmosphere. But of course, that too was impermanent. So after 15 days, it passed. <laughs> like all things. Then the next one is a bit similar. I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness toward these venerable, both openly and privately. I maintain verbal act of loving kindness toward them both openly and privately. I maintain mental act of loving kindness toward them both openly and privately. 
I consider, why should, not, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Then I set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. We are different in body, but one in mind. I know this is a little provocative. Why should I do what somebody else wants me to do? I am a free, individual human being. And this, I think, is one of the, I would say, nearly the main obstacle to community, whatever community it is, residential community, friendly community, dharma community who meets once a week, is that. That we've been so trained to be individual, so trained to be the best, so trained to compete, that actually when I say that to you, how, what did you think? Did you think, yeah, I'll go for that? Or did you think, hey, but, what about if they take advantage? I mean, this is generally the first thing that you think. Wait a minute. I want to be a free human being. And what was really, um, I mean, fascinating for us in Korea, in Korea they really have this very strong uh, kind of like uh, communal feeling as a nation, which they have built over time through different things. And so if you say to them, and you talk to them about my father, and there are several children in your family, they will tell you, wait a minute, he is not your father, he is our father. You have to say our father. You don't say my father, he's not just yours. He's a father of everybody. And when they talk of the country, they don't say my country. They say Uli Nana, our country. So they're very communal. So you have a very communal society. And then on top of that, you have the monastics setting. And then there you have the idea of the great assembly. And one day Stephen was in the monastery and one monk come to him because they have to do something all together. And Stephen was not very keen to go. And then the monk said to him, if the great assembly go to hell, you go to hell with it. (laughs) So the idea of the great assembly is like you do everything together and you have to. And of course, I'm sure there can be abuse But I think that idea of great assembly can also help us to look beyond our private interest, to look beyond our private personal desire. And through that, keeping our good judgment and wisdom actually dissolve a little of working together. And so it's not just about me, but it can also be about us doing something together. And then I wanted just to to say this quotation about appropriate speech, because I think, again, there is a great opportunity to cultivate this in daily life. And this is in Majima Nikaya 41, She does not, or he does not, in full awareness, speaks falsehood for his or her own end, or for another hand, or for some petty worldly end. So it's kind of looking at if somebody lies, I mean, do you lie for yourself? Do you lie for somebody else? Or do you do for kind of like just fun? You know, I mean, once we had this idea, we were in the, in the community, we were in the, in the dining room, and we thought, what about if we start a rumor? So we thought, who could we start a rumor about? So we were kind of trying to find the person and then trying to say what we could say as a rumor. And, and I think sometimes people do that, especially now on the internet. I mean, you can 
throw any rumor you want, you know, even with pictures. So in a way to kind of looking at, at why do we lie? Why, why do we lie? What is behind it? Abandoning malicious speech, he abstained from malicious speech. He does not repeat elsewhere what he has heard here in order to divide those people from this. Nor does he repeat to these people what he has heard elsewhere in order to divide these people from those. So this is interesting definition of malicious speech. Is actually when you, on purpose, you in a way say nasty thing about somebody to somebody else and vice versa in order to create discord. And once I had this uh, very uh, difficult experience, actually, about problem with friends. And then they were each accusing each other of all kinds of things, when before they were really good friends. And then they enlisted me each to accuse something to the other. And they would say, but Martin said. And then the other one, no, 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 Martin said. And I mean, I was tr talking to each to try to make things more peaceful. And then I realized they were using me to attack the other. And then I said, wait a minute, I'm out of that one. <laughs> I could see it was, it was so antagonistic, you know. So we are, this is to me something which we really need to work on, really need to be careful. Of course, if there is something difficult, you need to say somebody. I mean, if somebody comes to me and says, uh, what about this teacher? You know, should I go to see that teacher? And if I know that teacher has a tendency to jump on young girls, then I say, well, if you're a young girl, don't go. <laughs> if, you're, if you're an elderly man, why not? <laughs> so that, in a way, is not malicious speech. It's kind of like, you know, be careful. But otherwise, we really have to be careful. How, how do we speak about other people when they're not there? Once there was this practitioner who decided, he or she, can't remember who, decided that for a month or two, they would not speak about anybody else to somebody else if that person was not there. And that person said, my speech greatly reduced. <laughs> for two months, I did not say much, actually. <laughs> so that kind of, in a way, when we say something, what do we say? When we're talking about somebody else, are we creating more trouble or less trouble? So is one who reunites those who are divided, a promoter of friendship, who enjoys concord, rejoices in concord, delights in concord, a speaker of words that promote concord, abandoning harsh speech, she abstains from harsh speech. She speaks such words as are gentle, pleasing to the ear, and lovable as go to the heart, are courteous, desired by many, and agreeable to many. Abandoning gossip, he abstains from gossip. He speaks at the right time what is factual and good about the Dhamma and the discipline. And at the right time, he speaks words worth recording reasonable, moderate, and beneficial. And this is, in a way, the challenge of gossip. So I totally agree that you need to gossip a bit. You know, the Buddhists do it as much as anybody else, even if it's one of the four things we uh, are encouraged not to do. Everybody likes a little Dharma gossips. But I think what we have to see, there is a difference with what I would call light chit-chat, so you can kind of feel, kind of get to know the person, be friendly, and not kind of straight away ask a possibly difficult question or pointed question or difficult subject to gossiping in such manner which actually can be detrimental, either detrimental to yourself or detrimental to the other person. And so to me, when I speak often, I think, why am I saying this? Why am I talking about this? Do I really need to say that? And it's kind of in a way, not that we stop talking, because I think 
communication is important. But I think this um, advices about appropriate speech is really looking, how do I speak? Is the way I communicate with awareness, with mindfulness, with wisdom, with compassion? And what is the effect of my words on others? I think it's very important. We don't just talk so that we can enjoy talking, but we're sharing something with others. And so what is the effect on others? Then I wanted to finish by this uh, quotation. There are these four grounds for the bonds of fellowship. So basically, four qualities which will help community building. Which four? Generosity, kind words, beneficial help, and consistency. And to me, if you're trying to develop community, I think this is very important to start with instead of what am I going to get from this, but how can we create something together which will be helpful, which will be beneficial. And so we need to start with this generosity. So it's not just for myself, but there is a spirit of generosity, the spirit of giving. Then kind words. And I think we have to be careful, not that we speak too gently, 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 and it's kind of superficial and things like that, but how can I speak in such a way which is not hurtful? And again, which people can hear and we can discuss if we have difference of idea or whatever. Beneficial help, that in a way this group is to share things together, but also to help each other. And that's why I really like one thing about the Quaker, is that in the Quaker group in various towns, generally the way it works is that one person is supposed to keep an eye on one or two other persons. And so if the person doesn't come around, then generally they check, how are you? And if the person is ill, generally they try to help out. So the idea is not just, oh, we get together so that we can sit together in silence, and worship in our own way, but that actually we're trying to develop a community. And so we're not just a community when we meet, but we also a community in that we care for each other. And then this idea of cons- consistency, so that we are consistent. And I think, again, it's kind of looking that, especially for us, who are so uh, individualistic in a way, it's not easy to actually form groups. And it's not easy to form groups, community, which last, which sustain themselves. And I think to me this is actually one of the challenge of secular Buddhism. Is actually how can we make so that the meditation is not just for this inner transformation, but that the meditation, the path, is also for, you could say, people transformation, society transformation. But how can I transform society if I cannot even be able to be in a group which meets regularly, which is generous, which supports each other, which cares for each other? And often that's what I've seen going around the world and I meet people in different places and I find it fascinating. Like there is one group which is very interesting in New Mexico where they decided, they're all lay people and they first toyed with the idea with uh, having a teacher and they tried to have a regular teacher and that did not really work out because they were a little like, you know, they wanted to be more democratic and the teacher generally wanted to be more hierarchical. So often I think you have a problem in groups between people who are for hierarchy and people who are more for democratic consensus. And the teacher often go very quickly in the hierarchical model. I'm the teacher, I know best. And I mean, we are adults. The teacher about certain things doesn't know best at all. 
And so what is interesting with this group is that it developed as a lay group with a rent a teacher for a month, <laughs> which I thought was a good idea. But then what was interesting within that group was that you had two, often, I mean, many years ago when I was, went to see them more often, we could see the tension, which I see in all the group, between the one who just wanted to come to the weekly sit. Come and sit, be quiet, and get out. And so the one who did not want to become a community, and the benefit from the community, and then the others who wanted to be a community. And my suggestion was that when you sit all together, this is supportive to each other. But the one who wants to form a group which is more active together, don't wait for the other one to convince them they must be communal. Let them be and share with them the city. But you, if you want to be more communal, do it. Don't wait for them. And I think this is very important to see that you left different people with different tendency. And so not to force everybody with the same tendency. But that if you have enough people who want to do things together, go for it. In Bristol, that's what happened with the inside group in Bristol. They just decided they, want to, they wanted to be more than just a sitting group. They really wanted to form a sangha. And so they have events where they go for walks together on weekend. They have events which I really think is important of doing retreat, small weekend retreat, just themselves. No teacher. And they just sit together. And that, to me, then, you have less that dependency on the teacher to be a sangha. But that actually you cultivate yourself the creation of sangha. That is, it's not just about the teacher telling you what to do. The sangha is about practitioner cultivating together. And through that, I think, of course, you could just use it at this is a group, and together we get together, and so we practice together. But you could also be, I would say, more creative and try to see, and that's what's happening in America and also in England, can we also create a group which is in a, a Dharma group in the way it relates to each other? That, I think, is more challenging. So that it's not just about sitting, listening to talks, but how can we develop a sharing, supporting, consistent community, generous community toward each other? And I think this is, in a way, the challenge, the challenge I see for the future, in a way. Then I wanted to finish just to the point about, of course, not everybody can develop a physical group. I mean, some can, like in London nowadays, from a small beginning, London inside, there is so many different groups in London of different types connected to London inside. But you cannot necessarily be able to do that. So then, of course, as Stephen says, sometimes we can go to a Quaker meeting. Sometimes, even if you're not so keen on the Buddhist center, sometimes you can just sit with them, which is already something. But you can also create your own group. And it doesn't have to be big. I think we have to be careful of this idea that to be a Sangha, you have to be many. There is this famous story of Larry Rosenberg. His first retreat, nobody came. <laughs> but he decided he would still do it. So he did everything, the sitting, the teaching, by himself. <laughs> so he was a Sangha of one. And now the Sangha is, of course, much bigger in Cambridge, in Massachusetts. But that's why I think sometimes you can be a Sangha of two. You can be a Sangha of three. And then, of course, we can be a Sangha nowadays through the Internet. And nowadays you have so many different groups. Of course, you have secular Buddhist group in America, in England. And actually, the secular Buddhist group in England is looking for ladies, secular Buddhist ladies. <laughs> because at the moment, they have too many 
men in the discussion. They would like to have more ladies there too. So you can join them. Secular.co.uk, secularbuddhism.co.uk, I think. And soon they're going to start a little uh, teaching course, a little course on Buddhism. Of course, you have secular in America, secular Buddhism in America, in Australia, in Australia, in New Zealand. So there are kind of lots of these secular Buddhists around. But you also have the, for example, the tricycle website, which has a very good, lots of kind of discussion group, and you can form your own community. One of my favorite is actually this Omicro that you have on Twitter. And there a crew of people who actually I don't think physically know each other, but they're dedicated to meditation. So then, you know, you suddenly, I follow one of them. So then suddenly you have the fellow who said, now I'm sitting for 20 minutes. Anybody joins me. And then after 20 minutes, I finished. <laughs> and so there is, I don't know, I think there are about 100 people in this OMI crew of people who meditate regularly. It's O-M-C-R-U. It's on Twitter. <laughs> so you are, in a way, you have different things. You know, on Facebook, you have lots of different things. I found the, what's the thing is the assembly. Oh, yes. What I mentioned was the Sunday assembly. If you Google Sunday assembly London, then there are people who get together, but they do a bit of singing. So you have to see if you like singing or not. <laughs> so they have the Sunday assembly connected a little to Alan the Bottom too. Or what we're going to miss tomorrow, unfortunately. Tomorrow, you have in Regent's Park from 1.30 to 3.30 a meditation flash mob. I would love to be there, but I will be in the tray. And that's Wake Up London. And Wake Up London is actually follower of Tim Nathan. Wake Up London, therefore, the 25 to 35 of age. But I think all these can also join the flash mob, I think. I have not checked. But they have also a group for the older people. And so they do lots of things in London like that. I mean, one of the beautiful ones in London is um, once a month they walk in silence in Hyde Park on a Sunday morning just as a peaceful demonstration. <laughs> so you have, I don't know, nowadays how many you have, maybe 50 people for, I don't know, 30 minutes, an hour, walk in silence. Just as a kind of like, you could say, a flash mob of walking meditator in silence. So there are lots of things happening. And then on the internet, of course, we can also create, you can create nowadays your own group, of course. So I'll stop here. So are there any questions or comments? Uh, there are groups of secular Buddhism in France. Huh? In France. No. Uh, the French, the French are the tough ones. <laughs> The French, the problem with the French is, uh, although they're reputed to have made the, a revolution, they're very conservative. They're very conservative. So in France, Stephen is considered like the antichrist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you say you are uh, kind of, you follow Stephen, then they don't allow you in their centers. <laughs> So, um, yeah, no, secular Buddhism is not very big in France at the moment. <laughs> in Holland, I think possibly something, possibly, I don't know in Holland, because I know in Austria, I think possibly in Germany there is some idea about it. I'm not sure about Holland if something is starting or not. Because generally the way it works is one person kind of try to to start it and as it can do a website and then they can often get other people to join. Yes? When you were a nun in Korea, um, you said uh, several times that uh, you were meditating 10 hours a day, 
six months in a year. Uh, what I want to know is, what are you doing for the rest of the six months? Okay, the way it worked is that in the winter and in the summer, you had the three-month meditation season. And then in the free season, which were spring and autumn, then you generally sat two hours in the morning, early morning, like early morning means three o'clock in the morning, and then in the evening from seven to nine. And in the day, you could study or do more meditation or work in the field or whatever. Or in the free season, you could travel. So generally what you did, what I did was to go and visit other teachers. So I would have my little pilgrimage to various teachers and also various great nuns, and then I would come back. So generally it's uh, one you cannot get out for the three months, and then the other one you can visit. You can go to different temples, you can do different things. So we sitting for, how long were you, you know, sitting okay, so we, one time? Uh, okay, so what we did was that we generally got up at 3 o'clock in the morning, then you sit for 50 minutes, 5-0, then you walk indoors for 10 minutes at a good pace, then you sit again for 50 minutes, then you have a breakfast, then you have three times 50 minutes with 10, then in the afternoon you have four times 50 minutes with 10. Then you have a, at 4 o'clock generally you have the work period, an hour. And then you have um, light dinner. And then again two 50 minute slot. If you have a, a light, I mean an ordinary schedule. Ordinary schedule is 10 hours, 50 minutes like that. Um, so 10 hours sitting, 6 hours sleeping. And when Stephen arrived, they decided to go for a harder schedule, the poor thing. He never meditated so long. And so they were doing 12 hours, and they were doing four hours sleeping. And then, he would, then I was called because he was problematic. <laughs> because the problem was that at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, Stephen would get up and he would be... <gasps> So they came to me, I said, wait a minute, this guy is really disheartening with his, you know, sigh. Could he stop sighing like this? <laughs> so he stopped sighing. <laughs> yes? Um, is there much music in the same in Korea? Uh, no, no, no. You no. see, the thing, the thing with... Um, Music is that one of the precepts of the monks and the nuns is that they cannot go to performance and they cannot do music themselves. So what you have there in terms of is chanting. The only thing you are left with is chanting. But nowadays for the lay people, they're starting to introduce, it's very strange, they're starting to introduce chanting for lay people but like Christian hymns. So it's quite a strange hybrid that you, sometimes if you go to big ceremony, you will have this kind of Buddhist chanting Christian style. It's kind of <laughs> so no, generally you don't have music. But I mean, there was one nun, one nun who was a beautiful voice and she was into classical music and she was a, DJ in a Buddhist radio station. And then she said, you know, classical music is like, you know, chanting. It's similar to chanting. It opens the heart. But that's rare. Yes? Um, could you offer any advice about handling when other people try to draw you into their gossip, when they're talking about other people, and you want to be kind because sometimes they're just venting or something, right? They need to be heard. So, so you don't want to cut them off, but how to not get drawn into it? I think generally the two things, trying not to collude. I think this is very important. That if yes, they say, this person is terrible, he's awful, then you don't say, yeah, 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 they're so bad, you know, and you kind of add to it. But that you listen to them, but you don't feed it. That, I think, is very important not to feed it. And then if you know something good about the person, 
if it's appropriate, trying to introduce, but that time, they actually were kind, or actually they're really ill at the moment. If the person is not in such a state that if you say that, they say, oh, you're taking your side. So you, you have to be very careful how they're venting, really. And trying to see if by listening to them in such a way that actually it can go down. So the person is not becoming more and more aggressive, but actually slowly, slowly, they start to look at it in a different way. But then it means you have to be very creative and very skillful. That, I think, is, a, is an art, actually. And we learn this over time, because it's different with different people. Yes? Okay, first, if you really want to know about my experience in Korea, there is a book called Women in Korean Zen, and it's actually my experience of a nun in Korea and the experience of another great nun in Korea, if you're interested in that. Outside of that, uh, well, the relationship with North Korea is generally nil, because, especially at the moment, because it was ratcheted up. It goes up and down, the, the relationship between the two Korea. Uh, and so at the moment it's down, but you have a few monks. I know a group, a group which is very Buddhist, engaged Buddhist group in Korea, which works a lot about trying to um, look for reconciliation with North Korea. But this is a very, very tentative work. I mean, there is a lot of good intention from South Korea, but on the other side, it's a little kind of uh, constrained, one could say. So yeah, there are, there are Buddhist groups who are trying to work at that level. But again, it depends if the thing really go up or not, and what's happening, it depends on the political situation. Yes? Um, how do you think your experience would differ if you've been a, a Zen nun in another country like Japan or China? Well, I think with my temperament, it was the only place I could have survived, definitely, because I went to, I mean, I was going to Japan, but then I ended up in Korea. And when I went to Japan later on, I realized I could have never stayed in Japan. It was just way too formal for me. Like in Japan, if you go to a Japanese place, you need to become 150% Japanese. In Korea, you just need to be 75% Korean. So it's kind of a little more manageable. Then I went to stay in a nunnery. Uh, I mean, there is a wonderful nunnery, a wonderful nunnery in Japan, in Nagoya, with a great nun. And she's written a wonderful book, Zen Seeds. So there is some really great, great nun. Not many of them, but you have some great nun in Japan. But it's very formal. It's very Japanese. Then I went also to a great place in Taiwan, and uh, there was, again, a great nun who is now deceased. And, again, what I realized there, it was too Chinese, in a way, in terms of being very formal, but in a different way to the Japanese. It's very interesting, you know. And so I realized, too, there, I could not, I could not have lasted very long. A little bit, but not very long. I, I did a little skit. Um, I mean... In a conference, a Buddhist conference, I did a little skit about what happened in Taiwan with my socks. And you can find it on YouTube. Somebody filmed it and then put it on YouTube. To find it, you have to look, Martin Bachelor, socklessness. <laughs> and then you can see what was the problem there. So, I mean, again, wonderful place, wonderful place to practice. But uh, culturally, I think I really could not have fitted for very long. And I think... Basically, Korea was the only place where I could be accommodated in that way and we could fit my temperament. Yeah. What, what about Vietnam? Vietnam, I've never been to Vietnam. So I can, really cannot say, you know, because um, Vietnam, and now you have Thich Nhat Hanh, and there you have an interesting mixture 
of Zen and Theravada in Vietnam. It's very fascinating mix. But I mean, in the day when I was a nun, you really could not become a nun in Vietnam. Now it's different, though now it's, again, a little difficult. It was good for a while, now it stopped to be good. And they all had to come to France. So I think uh, Vietnam has its own culture, but I don't know it well enough to know if I would have fit it or not. What I mean by great nun is like what I would mean by great monk. That uh, the, uh, when I was in Korea, unfortunately, the year I arrived, the summer I arrived, without knowing it, nobody told me, but I did not know enough Korean to know it, two great nuns died. They were great mistress, you could say. So I never got to meet them. But later on, through really happy chance, I met this great nun, Song Yong Sunim. And she was a great nun just by... She was amazing. She was really humble, and she had a really good practice. It was a bit funny sitting with her, because I was very lucky. One time I was allowed to, to stay for a month with them during the free season, where they're doing a three-year retreat. And so I was able to sit. And so in the morning, early morning, so they would not fall asleep, they would sit facing each other instead of facing the wall. So I was a young one, so I was over there, and she was an elder one, and she had the clapper, and she was here. And so she would sit, and then she would, within two minutes, she would go. <laughs> and then after 50 minutes, I was really worried. You know, I had pain in my legs, and I thought, is she going to wake up? Or... And then just two minutes before the clapper, she would, whoops. <laughs> but she was wonderful. I mean, one has to read the story. She's the one of the poem. I read a poem that was her. And she had a really interesting life. And she was not like a great nun in terms that she became a famous person. But among the nuns, she was respected as a great nun, a great practitioner. And when, whenever I was with her, it was so, it was very special, very inspiring to be with her. But it was just her whole being. And Martin, when you, do you mean that when you say a great nun to us, you mean somebody that you admire greatly? It's not a titular thing, it's not a title given to somebody. Well, the, the two died were great mistresses. Like you say, great master. They were great, they were like uh, transmitted. Their enlightenment had been officialized, let's say. But, but this great nun, I talk about her enlightenment had not been officialized. <laughs> but everybody knew that she had had amazing experiences. So she was special, but not officialized. Yeah. Do you mind saying a little, little bit more about Zen, apart from anything goes? <laughs> and, you know, you said earlier on, I, I got a feeling that um, you didn't think much about Zen tradition. Me? Yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't not at all. Not at all. I'm, I mean, I am from the Zen tradition. When yes, I practice, I, I, I practice the Zen tradition. But like anything, personally... I will not be dogmatic, or I try to be the least dogmatic about anything. So when I look at the Zen tradition, I'm so grateful for Korean Zen. I'm really grateful for Korean Zen and for the monastic tradition and everything. I have what they call une. My debt to Korean Zen is immense, and I will never be able to repay it. I'm very conscious of that. So whenever I can do something for the Korean monk and nun or whatever, I'll be happy to do that. But I think it's like anything. That it be the Theravada tradition, that it be the Zen tradition, that it be the uh, Tibetan tradition. In a way, we have to see, does it fit us or not? Can we understand it all? What is it that we romanticize also? If I make fun of it, is actually not fun. I'm not making fun of Zen. 
are making fun of our romantic idea of Zen. That's what I'm making fun of. Well, the way we kind of get enamored of the koan, we get enamored of like, you know, this uh, cryptic thing, and all these kind of things, what I would call being zeny. Z-E-N-N-Y. You see, I saw it in action, people being zeny. And to me, that's not... Well, I mean, one can be zeny if one wants, but uh, I'm not... Let's say it's not my uh, cup of tea. So that's what I mean, because I saw it very close. I, I just thought we can learn so much from that tradition. Sure, Particularly sure. about the oneness, non-duality. Sure, of course. You know, and, and based on experience, not so much on knowledge. And very much of course. Past, you know. Of course, of course. Yeah. If it's, you see, if it's really the experience, and if it's not imitation. Mm-hmm. You see, I have seen like people doing to Master Cousin. And Master Cousin was not impressed. (laughs) He said, before you do this, what is this? (laughs) They could not answer. We have to finish here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.